Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Last month, on July 31st, my birthday, we finished a seven-year in-depth verse-by-verse study of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, including the deuterocanonical books. It was truly an extraordinary experience. I actually wrote every single one of the lectures, over 500 hours of lecture, and researched each of those lectures and went to a depth that I really never have before. Now, September approaches, the beginning of a new quarter, and thanks to COVID-19, we can have no live classes at any of the churches or venues. So what to do? Well, I came up with a plan. On September 7th, we're going to launch an in-depth study of St. Paul the Apostle. The entire program will span six eight to ten week academic quarters and consists of over 80 50 to 60 minute audio video lessons, over 5,000 pages of written material, photographs, classic artworks, Google Earth satellite maps, and extensive bibliographies for personal study, even greater depths. In this new course, you'll receive two lessons each week, one on Tuesday, one on Thursday, to listen to or watch at your own convenience. Plus, for the very first time, I'll be having weekly Zoom office hours. So we can sit down together face-to-face online and talk about the lessons and get to know each other perhaps a little better and a little more personally. Now, why a class on St. Paul? Apart from Jesus himself, St. Paul is arguably the most significant personality in the New Testament. After all, St. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He evangelized all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and a good chunk of Europe. No slouch, our St. Paul. We first meet Paul as Saul of Tarsus at the stoning of Stephen, where he supervises Stephen's murder. On that same day, we read, Saul began trying to destroy the church. Entering house after house and dragging out men and women, he handed him over for imprisonment. We then learn that Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. Saul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus transforms him from Saul of Tarsus, the self-proclaimed greatest of sinners, to St. Paul, one of our greatest of saints. But the transformation doesn't take place overnight. After his conversion, Saul still has a very long way to go, and we'll be following his development in the Acts of the Apostles and throughout our in-depth study of his 13 letters and epistles. Just who was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was the young rising star in Judaism. As an adult student of the greatest rabbi of his century, Gamaliel, who himself was the grandson of the great rabbi Hillel, Saul was being groomed 
and position for leadership in the Jewish Sanhedrin. Many leaders emerge in history, but the truly great leaders are those who confront and prevail over an existential crisis. For Saul of Tarsus, that crisis was the birth of the church. On the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, A.D. 32, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit arrives in Jerusalem like a freight train, very publicly. We read that suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind, and it filled the entire house in which the apostles were. Then there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which parted and came to rest on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. At the roaring sound, a large crowd gathers at the southern steps of the temple, wondering what in the world just happened. Although the Acts of the Apostles highlights the works of St. Peter and St. Paul in the church's early years. The Holy Spirit is really the engine driving all the events. As we read through our narrative, notice the pervasive presence of the Holy Spirit. For example, at Pentecost, all of the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter tells his listeners on the Temple Mount to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Peter addresses the Sanhedrin, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. When Peter tells Ananias that he's not lied to him, that is to Peter, but to the Holy Spirit, on his second appearance before the Sanhedrin, Peter affirms that we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. The seven deacons chosen to assist the community are known to be full of the Spirit. And the list goes on and on all throughout our narrative in the Acts of the Apostles. So in a very real sense, the Acts of the Apostles could be more aptly titled the Acts of of the Holy Spirit. So what I'd like to do over the next several podcasts is lay the groundwork, set the stage for Paul to walk onto it and follow him in some depth in our podcasts as we launch our brand new course this Tuesday. So turn with me, if you will, over to the Acts of the Apostles. Now, after Jesus crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. He spent 40 days with his 11 disciples. Remember, Judas is out of the picture. And he taught them what they needed to know to take the gospel message out to the world. And how did he do it? He went right back to the Hebrew scriptures, to the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he taught them everything those scriptures said about him everything about him. And that really laid the foundation for their going out to the world and getting the gospel message out. When he had finished teaching them, he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And they watched 
as he was going. We read in Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the very same way that you've seen him go. Well, with that, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Only about a 20-minute walk. I've walked it myself. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now, those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not Judas Iscariot. He's out of the picture. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, where do we go from here? In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group now numbering about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas Iscariot, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, an eyewitness, and he shared in this ministry. And with the reward he got for his wickedness, for setting up the meeting with the Sanhedrin, for setting up Jesus' crucifixion, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field, in their language, a keldama, that is, the field of blood. Well, we know that Judas hanged himself. But I suspect they found him a few days later, and when they cut him down, his bloated body hit the ground and just split open like a ripe watermelon. So Peter has decided, and notice Peter is the leader of the band. Peter decided... It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Judas's replacement as an apostle must be an eyewitness to all the events from Jesus' baptism to his death, burial, and resurrection. He must have seen it with his own eyes. Now, who might that be? They proposed two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. This is the very first we've heard about these two guys in all of Scripture. 
But apparently they met the criterion of being eyewitnesses to Jesus' entire public ministry. They must have traveled with them on the road, along with the twelve. Well, they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. That happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, in chapter 2 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost is one of the three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. Passover remembers the Exodus, Pentecost, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and Tabernacles, the 40 years in the wilderness. When the Jewish feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? Because it was a pilgrimage festival. Jews came from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. The way you would travel in that day? Not so much by land, but by sea. The Roman Empire is the landmass surrounding the Mediterranean, and the easiest and fastest way to get from point A to point B was by ship. So they came in, they sailed in to Caesarea Maritima, and up to Jerusalem they went. Some walked from the north, some from the south, but they were from all over the Roman Empire. The whole crowd came together in bewilderment, and each one heard them, the apostles, speaking in his own language. That is, the apostles were all from, uh, all from Galilee. Their native language was Aramaic. And they were speaking in Aramaic. But utterly amazed, all those people from all over the Roman Empire heard the apostles speaking in their own language, in the language of people from Rome, people from Egypt, people from Greece, people from Asia Minor, all these different languages. Oh, I longed for that gift when I was studying for my PhD and had to have several languages. I'm a knucklehead at learning languages. I'm way better at learning dead languages than living languages. I have a really hard time replicating the sounds. I can't remember it. And I prayed, oh, taking light, taking French. Oh, I'll never forget it. Taking French. Every Friday, every Friday, we had a quiz. And I would study and study and study. And it would all be held in my head. And I'd get to class, take the quiz, walk out of class, and just like a mind dump, down it would go and be gone. Well, there was a fellow in the university research library who, was the, who ran the cataloging department for all the foreign language books. His name was Gene, and he was a, an owlish looking man with round, thick glasses. And I remember saying to him once, Gene, it was said he knew 18 languages. 
said, Gene, how in the world did you learn 18 languages? And he looked over the top of his glasses at me and he said, by the sweat of the brow, my boy, by the sweat of the brow. Oh, I prayed every Friday that I could just speak in English and the teacher would hear me in French. It didn't happen, but it did here. Are not all these men speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they're drunk. But what does it mean? What does this gift of language mean? People from all over the Roman Empire heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. I think at a deep level, it means the gospel message is not just for Jews in Jerusalem or Israel, but for people in the entire world. The gospel message goes out to the world. And indeed, over time, it goes out in every language. Well, with this, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. So Peter stands up at the Southern Steps. I've taught in the very same spot. And he raised his voice. This is Peter, who was afraid of a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest. Now he is on fire. He said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Well, had it been five, well, maybe but it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here we quote Joel, chapter 2, 28 to 32. Peter says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even all my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, how did Peter know to quote Joel 26, 28 to 32? Remember during the 40 days when Jesus, the risen and glorified Christ, taught the apostles what they needed to know to take the gospel to the world, and he taught from the law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus pointed this out himself, and Peter remembered it. So he continues, Men of Israel, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, here's Peter, what courage! You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Think of that. God himself stepped into this world and fleshed as a human being. The Gospel according to John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. God stepped into this world and we killed him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him in Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Again, pointed out by the risen and glorified Christ to the twelve. So Peter continues, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is right here to this day. And Peter points right to where David's tomb is. You can see it from the southern steps of the temple. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That was Psalm 35. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, there it is again. Peter is on fire here. When the people heard this, they were, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, What, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We began Acts with 120 believers. Now, 3,000 more become believers. 3,000 more are saved. Now, notice that. This is the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which remembers the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And what happened on that day? On that day, in Exodus, when Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets of the Ten Commandments, what did he find? the people were worshiping a golden calf. Moses smashed the tablets and he said to his brother Aaron, round up the Levites. And on that day, 3,000 people were killed. Did you get that? On the first Pentecost, which remembers the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the first Pentecost, which marks the birth of Israel as a covenant community under law, 3,000 people died. On this Pentecost, AD 32, marks the birth of the church as a covenant community under grace, and 3,000 are saved. That parallel is no accident, my friends. Oh, this is good stuff. I mentioned that every great leader becomes great by confronting an existential crisis. For Saul of Tarsus, this was the crisis, the birth of the church. And we'll follow up with this on Wednesday's podcast. But here we are, we got our foot in the door, foot in the door for a study of St. Paul the Apostle. Thanks for being with you with me. I look forward to seeing you again on Wednesday. And remember, September 7th, we launch St. Paul the Apostle. Blessings to you. Bye-bye now.